Hi, this is Dr. MJ coming to you from beautiful Boston, Massachusetts. This is the Women in Dentistry podcast where we feature women in dentistry making waves and leading the industry through the next decade. I am your host, Dr. Mary Jane Hanlon, a former dental assistant, dental hygienist, and now dentist. I'm very pleased to introduce you today to Ms. Deborah Engelhart Nash. Deborah's a trainer, an author, a presenter, and a consulting. Having been in dentistry for over 30 years, she engages standing room only audiences for organizations and study groups nationally and internationally. Through her service, she has had the honor of meeting amazing people and speaking in beautiful countries such as Peru, Sweden, Romania, England, Croatia, France, and Turkey. She's a continual presenter for the American Dental Association, the American Academy of Cosmetic Dentistry, and the Chicago Dental Society Midwinter Meeting. It is now my pleasure to bring you to my interview with Deborah Engelhart Nash. Deb, I am so excited to have you on the show today. I am really looking forward to having some conversations with you because as I've shared with you in the past, I've really looked up to you as a speaker and since I was a young dentist. So I can't wait to learn more about you as a person and how you got into the field of dentistry. So without any further ado, if you could just share with our audience how you got into dentistry and where it took you, and I know it's been a long path, but and what you're doing today. And Fun. You know, it's because if I was thinking about this as I knew that we were going to be chatting today. And I thought if people in high school and college said I was going to be in the dental field, they'd say she's the last person that would ever be in the dental field because my degree is in theater arts education. So I was a secondary, I was high school drama and literature teacher in Seattle, Washington, when all the bond issues failed. And of course, when bond issues failed, what happens Um, all the liberal arts programs get cut, uh, which to me is very sad. So my dentist said, um, I was, you know, I was substitute teaching, I was driving, I was going anywhere I could. And my uh, dentist said, you know, you'd be great in a dental office. I said, isn't that a science? (sighs) You know, and um, I said, I don't think about science. I took, I took geology for my college lab. I mean, my college lab was a geology class. So I he said, well, take this Probably because you wanted to learn about precious stones, right? Well, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Like, I'll tell you a funny story about that. When I moved to the South, because I grew up, born and raised in California, lived in Seattle for 22 years. I moved to, to Charlotte, North Carolina. I was engaged to um, my husband, Dr. Ross Nash, who, once again, if you ever told me I was going to be married to a Southern bald dentist, I would have told you not in a million years. And Ross always says, do you have to tell them that I'm bald? And I, I always say, it's very obvious once they see you. So we were in the, we were in a jewelry store and I was admiring some jewelry in a, in a jewelry case. And I said, oh, those earrings are really pretty. They're David Yearman, ruby gold earrings. And, and um, Ross said, um, well, why don't you try them on? I said, no, 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 no. I, I'm, I'm not going to try them on. I grew up from very, 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 as you'll hear, very humble beginnings. I mean, once again, uh, foster kid, emancipated minor, learned how to make, uh, slept in my car with my mom for months and learned how to make dinner on a toast in a toaster oven in a gas station lavatory. Anyway, so I'm in the South now and I'm admiring the earrings. My husband says, try them on. And I said, no, no, no. And the, the owner of the jewelry store who happened to be a patient of my husband's pulled me aside. She says, honey, 
you live in the South now. When a man asks you to try on jewelry, you try it on. So I, I tried them on, and of course, they became my wedding gift. But I don't know if that had been planned. So, so back to my dentist, who was an instructor at the University of Washington and had a private practice, a very large private practice in Linwood, Washington, had me take the Myers-Briggs test, had me take the Mary Meeker test of um, moto, you know, um, hand movement, timing, and determined that I had potential to be a front, uh, uh, person. So he taught, trained me to be a dental assistant, which was great, except I really like to, I'm a high, if you take the DISC profile, I'm an ID, I like to talk to people. And a, a good dental assistant is an SC. You know, they, they want to go in there and do that. And I want to, yeah, I'm gregarious. I'm the, I'm the leaves on the tree, not the, tr- not the roots. So he moved me to the, f- to the front office. And I had a great trainer. Her name was Jerry. She was unbelievable. And um, from there, I went to work for um, a four-man dental group. So I managed, and actually back in the day, it was called Solo Group. Four dentists sharing space, private practice, they each had their private practice, but they shared the space, they shared the supplies. So it was really kind of a smart model back then because they could be their own doctors, but they cut their expenses because everything was shared four ways. They each had, we had, they had a dedicated manager, that was me, but we each had their own front office person, they had their own dental team. So I managed that group, and then one of the doctors from the group decided he wanted to uh, leave the group, uh, the four-man group, or the solo group, and start his own. And he said, "If uh, he said, someday you will outgrow my practice, but if you come with me, I know you will build my practice, and I want you as long as I can have you, and I will make you the highest paid manager in Seattle. And he did. He was true to his word. And so his friends would say, um, Doug, how are you doing this? How are you um, working like 28 hours a week and making, being so successful? And he said, I just, t- I leave it to her. I leave it up to her. So he was a groupie of Dr. Phil Whitener. Do you remember him? Dr. Phil Whitener was a practice management. This is kind of an interest. Some people don't didn't even know that he is really the, the uh, man behind, the person behind pride management. Because Jim Pride was the associate dean at University of Pacific, and he was about design, dental office design, making it efficient. But some of his students came to him and said, hey, Dr. Pride, we have a beautiful practice, but we don't know what to do in it. And someone told Jim Pride about Dr. Phil Whitener, who interestingly enough had a, a, a growing up much like I did. He grew up in a boy's home, very, very successful dentist. And so Phil Whitener and Jim Pride came together and they created the Pride um, Institute. That's how, but it was really Phil Whitener's systems and practice management systems that really started Pride management. Well, my boss was uh, just every time he saw that Phil Whitener was speaking, we went. I mean, we would drive from Seattle to Portland. We would drive to Spokane. We would drive, you know, like four hours to go hear Dr. Phil Whitener. And one day, Dr. F- Dr. Whitener said, um, you guys keep coming up. And he said, and so he always had this exercise, which is kind of interesting. And I, I do it now in my audiences. I, I kind of stole the idea from him. So he said, okay, everybody stand up. 
And then he said, if you don't know your office's production and collection, sit down. If you don't know the number of new patients you have, sit down. If you don't know, and he started going through these, these uh, qualifications. If you don't know the value of, of your patient, if you don't know your accepted treatment plan rate, if you don't know your recall return rate, if you don't know what additional treatment is being diagnosed out of hygiene, sit down. Well, I was the last person standing. And what we didn't know at the time, that was the way he was recruiting uh, consultants. Wow. So he recruited me to go to work for Pride from that audience. He said, I need you to talk. And there was a consultant in the room. He said, I need you to go talk to her. Her name was Sandy Beal. He said, I need you to go talk to Sandy. And from there, um, I became a Pride consultant in my early career. And it was great training. It was great. Great training. And I had, my territory was Washington, Oregon, and the San Francisco Bay Area, and Idaho. I was there my, the first nine months for, of the year, and I was a number two consultant in the company that year. So I became a, a pride consultant, and back then it was even called something different. It was called Pacific Institute. He was sued for the name because Lou Tice also had an, a Pacific Institute. So I was a pride consultant, and then things started to change with pride and the way they were consulting with their clients and the program that they had outlined for clients. And um, my, I, myself and six other consultants kind of challenged it. We said, yeah, this isn't congruent with the, the philosophy of service we like to provide the client. Um, it was very cookbook. It was very structured. Uh, I don't know what they're doing now. Uh, I'm, I know they're still successful. I know that they're now with Spear Management and Amy Morgan's awesome. So six of us left in, in, in a six-month period of time and started our own company. So 1985, I started my own consulting company. And then we actually, the, the group of us started an organization that still exists today called the um, Academy of Dental Management Consultants. And I was uh, one of the founding members. And uh, I think I'm the oldest member. <laughs> so last year I received the Honorary Lifetime Achievement Award because I think they've, they decided they better give it to me before I died. And I just said, you know, when I die, just stuff me and prop me up at the meeting. I'll be there. So that academy has been about as, around as long as uh, my career. It was within two years after I started my own company that we formed the Academy of Dental Management Consultants. So I became independent in 85. Uh, had a, um, I taught practice management at the Oregon Health Sciences University. Uh, there was a great continuing education fellow there. And I don't, you're not old enough to remember him, but his name was Dar Reveal. He had a great continuing education programs for the students and for private practice dentists. And um, he, he saw the value of teaching the juniors and seniors a little bit about business. You know, they, we could only do it in the last quarter of their, of their curriculum. And it was for two and a half hours. And so then he created a study club, a postgraduate study club that I facilitated with some other consultants. And then I started an office manager study club in Portland, which still exists today. And now it's called the Oregon um, office executive, and they like are over like 400 people. And started with my little study club that got so big that we had two, because I said, we will never take more than 20 because we need to have it personal. There can only be one person per office because you had to have a sanctuary that if you needed uh, to dump, you could dump there. Everything had to be kept confidential. 
And once we hit 20, then we would start a second study club. So we had three going at one time. And then they formed this organization after I left the Pacific Northwest. I mentioned that I met this Southern ball dentist. And next thing you know, I'm now living east of the Mississippi. And um, yeah, so I still consult. I still speak. I think that um, there's been a lot of things I've been very proud of. The Oregon uh, office executives, it was an organization that I'm really proud that I, I helped form that. In 2015, our office got a letter and it was from the Chicago Midwinter, the Chicago Dental, Chicago Dental Society. And it was a congratulations, you are the recipient of the Gordon Christensen Outstanding Lecturer Award. And I, I had to read it a couple of times because I'm thinking, where's Ross's name? I was assumed that it was being um, given to Ross. And I finally called the Chicago Dental Society. I said, you know, I got this letter. And they said, well, Deborah, it's you. He has designated you for the 2015 uh, Outstanding Lecture of the Year. I was the first non-dentist and the first, I believe, woman speaker that received the award. Congratulations. That is amazing. Yeah. From there, I mean, again, I speak, I write. I always threaten that I'm going to write a book because everybody says, do you have a book? Do you have a book? And if, you know, it's interesting because I'd love to write a, a book. It'd be all about communications. It'd be about how to speak to your patients and your team members in such a way that they understand and appreciate what you're trying to do, what you want to do for them. I'd also like to write some fiction. I have some great ideas about fiction. Yeah. So I've had a couple setbacks in my life, but again, I grew up with setbacks. Um, actually, I grew up the fact that and I finally was, I was told in my later years that I was an unwanted child, that my father really didn't want another child. And gosh, this sounds, I mean, I, I put my heart on my sleeve. You don't know me, but those who do, back in the day, my mother was a Marine Corps captain. My father was a private. They shouldn't have been dating. My mother could have been court-martialed, um, but they dated secretly. And when they did get married, they lived in a Quonset hut post-war. And my mother was pregnant four times and my father um, um, helped her abort them by drinking turpentine and grape juice. That's how they miscarried. That's how they did self-miscarriage back then. My mother died eventually in her early 50s of organ failure, which probably was because she drank turpentine and grape juice. Um, when I, she was pregnant with me and my father was saying, you know, I... Um, and I've, here's a real sensational scandal I just heard. I heard that my mother was pregnant with my older sister and my father was going, went to California. My mom was in Michigan and my, my mother had to go find him. He went to go get a job and send for her later, but he didn't send for her later. She had to go find him. And um, she loved my father desperately, desperately, almost to the point of harmfully loved him so much anyway when she was praying with me she said I'm not I'm not gonna lose this one and um I was born so I kind of started you know adversarially and um when my parent when I was 10 my parents divorced my father moved out my mom shipped me off to live with my grandparents for two years which was interesting in Michigan and then when she came to get me two years later this is right after, I remember people always say, where were you during the Kennedy assassination? I was with my grandparents. I remember that. This woman who showed up two years later, you know, we didn't remember, we didn't have cell phones back then. She, we couldn't 
we couldn't do this. There was no uh, Marco Polos. We didn't have uh, conversations like this. So to call me was hard for her to, you know, to get on the phone. Anyway, this woman in this pink Chevrolet Impala shows up in my grandmother's house. And what they hadn't told me was my grandmother was ailing. She'd had a heart problem. And they were basically saying, you know, it's time for you to come and get her. We're just getting too old and too feeble to take care of this teenage girl. So my mother didn't tell me when she beat me up is we had no place to live. So we lived in the car. We made our way back to California. Me and my mom and my wire-haired fox terrier named Mitzi, we lived in the car for about uh, three months, uh, which was one of the most stable places I lived with my mother because... I want to say my mom is no longer with, with me and, and, my, and neither is my father, neither is my two sisters or um, my I'm three sisters who they're all passed away. So my half brother and I are the only ones left, but I have to say this for my mom, cause I'm not no disparaging remarks about my mother. Uh, my mother's was a woman who didn't know how to navigate being a single mom. Uh, they didn't have the resources for women back then. They didn't have jobs for the women back then. So uh, my mom was doing the best she knew how, and um, that wasn't very good. And my mother was ill. Um, she had lupus. Um, she, again, she had all kinds of uh, ailments. My mother did the best she could. And before she died, we made amends. Um, so I, I just wanted to go on record that I ended up, before my mom passed away, forgiving her and her forgiving me and loving her and um, being there for her on her final days. But for the time, we lived in a car, and I was laughing. I told you, I learned how to make dinner in a toaster oven. We would go into gas stations, and we'd plug the toaster oven in, and we'd cook a meal, and we'd sort of take a bath. And about every 10 days, we would check into a hotel so we could shower and have a meal and do our thing. And, and so when we finally made it back to California, we actually rented apartments, but we would be evicted about every fourth month because my mom didn't pay rent. So I was not doing well in high school and I finally, and I, and we were on welfare and I went to my social worker and my uh, high school counselor and said, listen, I'm barely making C's and I know I have more potential than that. And I know, I know it's my environment. So I need to find a way of getting out of this environment so that I could become a better me. I know that, uh, that I can do that. And they said, well, this is what you're going to have to do. Now I'm a kid who, Back then, I can't say this now, but I was pretty pure in terms of, um, I didn't have any street smarts whatsoever. I had a very strict mother. I mean, when I pierced my ears, my girlfriend pierced my ears with the whole apple behind it and the ice cube. And then my mother was livid because she says, now you look like a gypsy. I mean, my mother that, yeah, oh, it was terrible. So on one hand, I had this very strict Methodist mother. And on the other hand, I had this woman who was trying to navigate and wasn't doing a very good job at it at any rate. So I'm pretty straight at this time. And my counselor, my social worker got together and they said, you're going to have to go to uh, the police station and declare yourself a runaway. And then you're going to have to go to juvenile hall and be put in the, the home for dependent children. Then they're going to take you to court and you're going to have to, do, to testify against your mother. And then we'll put you in the foster care program. And then um, when you are 16, you can, you can petition for your emancipation. Well, nobody wants a, a teenage foster kid because they think it's us. They think that we're bad, horrible people. I mean, I will tell you, it's really, I mean, this could be graphic, but here I am, this young, naive 15-year-old girl, and 
they're asking me what identifiable marks I have on my body. And I said, why? And they said, in case we have to identify you. And I had the whole cavity search. I mean, it's like, ah, I don't do, I don't, I still don't do that. I'm sorry. You know, we just, ah, you know, you know there's only one reason for that arena. I, <laughs> so, you know, so, wow. So I was in the, how old when you were going through all of this? I was 15. 15, and I just, um, I didn't have my license yet. I remember that. I had a little motorized scooter. I was very lucky. I mean, I'm in, the, I'm in this Albertson home, and I, and once again, I will, you know, I will absolutely do testimonial for teenage foster kids. I was in the home, in the Albert Sitton home for dependent children, Orange County, California, with girls who'd been raped by their dads. There was a family of four that literally that joke that they woke up one morning and their parents had moved away from them, leaving them in their beds in their pajamas and had moved in the middle of the night, left the kids. Girls and boys who had been just really um, maligned and abused by their, by their parents. And, but everybody, nobody wants uh, teenage foster kids because we're, we're trouble and we're probably juvenile delinquents and we've done drugs or stolen or done a bad thing, tried to kill our parents, whatever. None of that was true for us. We were not in juvenile hall. We were in the home for dependent children, waiting for foster families to choose us. I was lucky because the policeman who drove me to juvenile hall for my intake before I had, I, I, you know, you go into intake and you're either going to juvenile hall or you're going to the Albert Sitton home. He came and visited me almost every day in um, the home and petitioned to be my foster, foster dad. Oh my gosh, isn't that so nice? So, and he had four daughters and it was pretty awesome. So I was with them until um, I turned 16 and then I declared my emancipation. And the ruling was that I could still live with them, but I had to pay them rent and I had, you know, and I was on, I was on my own. And here's a dental, this is the, the dental, um, how this relates dentally. So I'm 16 years old, almost 17 now at the time, and I'm in my foster home, and I'm dinking around with one of my foster sisters, and we were wrestling, and a chair fell and hit me in the head, in the face, and broke tooth number nine. And I didn't have a dentist. I didn't go to a dentist. So I went down the street to, um, his name was Dr. Johnson, and I said, you know, can you fix this? And he said, well, you're on welfare coupons you're on Medicaid, so I really can't fix it, but I can smooth it for you. And I said, well, wait, I have four jobs. And so um, I, I was working in a drug st- a dime store. I worked at, the, at a drive-in theater. I was a babysitter, and I worked in a restaurant. So I said, I have four jobs. Can I pay for it myself? And he said, well, you can. He said, what we're going to do, he said, you're 16, he said, you're 17, almost 17. We're going to do a processed acrylic crown. It'll be a temporary that you will wear to you about 21 or 22, and then you want to replace it with a porcelain jacket. But you're not fully grown yet, so we're going to go ahead and do this process acrylic temporary for you. And it's going to be $85. So I negotiated I could pay half when he took the impression. It was a lab-fabricated restoration, a lab-fabricated uh, temporary. So I paid half when he delivered it. And I wore that temporary until my 30s. People would see that temporary. It was a beautiful blend of color. My tissue was healthy. Dentists would say, you know what? It's doing its thing. It looks really great. Let's keep it until 
until we don't have until you, you you can't keep it anymore and i didn't have it replaced until my mid-30s it had to be replaced twice for color matching and um but i stop and think that when dentists do what they do that they do have the ability to change people's lives that i am convinced that certainly i had again I'm a possibility thinker. You and I talk about that. And I obviously have more testosterone than most men. And, you know, I have a lot of gumption. But, hey, I had to fight from, the, from my, my conception. I had to fight. So I didn't even know it. But I just said, I just don't think as a junior rising senior that I'm going to feel good about myself with a, a broken tooth, uh, number nine in the front. So a dentist changed my life or was certainly instrumental in changing my life. So I give a lot of stock to dentistry. I watch my husband change people's lives all day, every day. So when you went to see that dentist, is that the dentist that brought you into his office and trained you from the very beginning? No, um, no. This Dr. Johnson, I was 17 at the time. And interestingly enough, Years later, when I was speaking in uh, the California Dental Meeting in Anaheim, somebody came up to me and they said, do you know that he still practices? And they said, could, could we, can I share your story with him? Because he would love to know. He said, I mean, how many times do patients tell you you changed their life? Most of them are complaining about what insurance will and will not pay, and they don't want to go to the dentist. They'd rather have a baby. Nah, nah, nah. This is a necessary thing but how great it is. And so th this person said, he's still practicing. And can I share your story with him? I said, oh my gosh, I would love, love to him to know that he changed the life of a young girl so many years ago. Yeah, it was really important. And the other cool thing was in, one of, in my audience years and years ago was the dentist who did hire me, Dr. George Hussey and his wife, Helen, were in my class and they just said, man, we just, we're so proud. We are so proud of you for accomplishing what you've done. And I said, well, you're the ones who scouted me. You're the ones who discovered me, who saw the potential. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Now, how old were you when you went to work for them? And you obviously didn't think about dentistry when you were in Dr. Johnson's office, but obviously somebody saw something in you that ignited that in you. So how old were you, how many years went by before you? Oh my gosh, I was already out of college. So I started college in my senior year of high school. I had so many credits in my senior year at Orange High School that I said, um, they said, well, you're just going to take three study halls. I said, oh, please stick a pencil in my eye. I'm not going to do that. I said, you know, Fullerton Junior College is right down the street. Could I get a pass to go start taking classes at FJC, Fullerton Junior College? And they said, well, we've never done that before. I said, well, why not? I mean, that's so silly. Why would I sit in three study halls? Well, it's crazy. So I started college in my senior year of high school. So I got, I got out of uh, in college in three years. So I was 24 when um, uh, doctor, I went to work for Dr. Hussey. Um, and my gosh, I'm 68. That's how long I've been in dentistry. I'm telling you, I'm, I'm old. I've seen a lot. I mean, I, I remember dip tanks. I know. I do too. Because I started working when I was only 14. So I do remember Gosh, them. See that? Do you know there's still some offices that have dip tanks? Yep. I know. They just won't get rid of them. It's amazing. You go into an office and you've got offices who won't get rid of the chart. It's like, are you joking me? 
I know. You're so fascinating as far as, I mean, you know, you think about how you grew up and then the fortitude that you had to manage all of this. So you enter into a foster home, you go all the way through high school, you emancipate yourself and get into a foster home. They bring you up for a couple of years. Or yeah, I was there until the middle of my senior year of high school. And then I finished high school, totally emancipated. Yeah. Wow. And at the time, my father, once again, I, I did still have a dad. There was still sperm involved there. And my dad yeah. was, yeah, he was remarried to a lovely person. She's still alive today. She still refers to me as her daughter. And I call her my stepmom. And what's really weird is she was 15 years younger than my dad. And then she married a man 15 years, remarried after my dad passed away, a man 15 years younger than her. So my stepmother's husband, who could kind of be called my stepdad, is two years older than me. <laughs> so it's like, oh, yeah, I crack up when I call him. I say, should I call you dad? I don't think so. I mean, I'm like Dennis. You're Dennis. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Good for her, though. I mean, she's a cougar or something. Yeah, she's a lovely person. And she still is a lovely person. Yeah, she lives in Gig Harbor, Washington. And I, when I'm in Seattle when, or when I'm in Washington State of Oregon, I make it a point of going to see her because she, she was the one who said to, to my dad, um, what do you mean you have this other daughter? Why haven't I met her? I need to meet her. And I met her on their wedding day. I went to their, that was, she picked me up and on their wedding day. And that's when I met my stepmom they were still in my life. My dad was once again, this magical, mysterious, cosmopolitan, very European style human that um, he was a savant. He was absolutely, the man was so well, well read. It was insane how he just loved to read. He loved to study. He was a real estate broker in California and he also had enough credit hours in college to become an attorney. He just didn't want to be a father. Isn't it so interesting? So how did you get through college? How did you manage all of that? Financially? Yeah, I mean, like you're by yourself. You, you know, you've got four jobs, but that's certainly not enough money to pay for tuition. Well, my first year, I got a scholarship. I got a journalism scholarship. So I had won a journalism award in an orange, um, which gave me a scholarship for one year. So the first year I went to college, I went under a journalism scholarship, but then I changed my major. So... I didn't, I, I basically paid for it out of my pocket and took out student loans and um, graduated in three and a half years. Yeah. And decided I want to be a, um, I want to be a teacher. You know, it's funny because, and I think I still do this. I think I was born to make a difference in people's lives, whether it be, and I'm not saying that to aggrandize myself, whether that be teaching Sunday school or whether that be again in teaching human trafficking against human trafficking. I, so I work with an organization and I teach people about you know, how to identify human trafficking and how prolific it is to you know, create an awareness about it and to make a difference in the lives of the people who hear me speak or the clients that I serve. I think that I, I like that I can make a difference. I like to be able to do that. And whether that be financially, that I have the financial resources that I can, I can help somebody or whether it be my stamina or, you know, again, my sense of um, my strength of character, which is another way. And, you know, you and I don't know each other very well. And I don't, I mean, strength of character always, you know, I just have a lot of balls. 
I just which is awesome. I mean, absolutely awesome. <laughs> There's another obstacle that you haven't hit upon that I know is coming. And when I think about people complaining about the weather or complaining about somebody moving their cheese or complaining about stupid shit, excuse my language. <laughs> well, we've, I like this. You've, start, you've set a precedent that we can swear. Yeah. I think to myself, oh my gosh, you know, so... How does one, you went through a lot as a kid. You know, some kids go through that trauma and they never come out of it. And they use it as an excuse. Exactly. And then others, you know, it skyrockets them. You know, I, I've talked to several women that I can think of off the top of my head through the podcast that I just shake my head and say, oh my gosh, how did you do this? And how did you survive this? And how did you come out on the other side okay? And you have come out on the other side more than okay, but it actually is, there's something in that resilience piece that some get and some don't. And, you know, I wonder what it is. I wonder what it is. You know what though? I think you can grow it. I think you can manifest resilience. You know, it's funny because I, we were, again, we were talking earlier as we were, we were becoming acquainted. I was diagnosed with a brain tumor in 2011. I lost the use of my right leg and I actually my right side. I thought I had stroked and uh, it turned out to be a brain tumor. And I remember being transported after my surgery, I had to have a craniotomy and they didn't get all the tumor. So I had to have chemo and I still have to go in and get MRIs every so often and make sure that it's nothing has grown because it was on an artery. So, but I remember being transported from the hospital to the rehab center. And I always think of Amy Winehouse's song, you know, I'm going, I love the rehab, her rehab song. So a different kind of rehab. After COVID, I might've needed the other rehab, but a different kind of, <laughs> different kind of rehab. <laughs> I think there's a lot of us that are in that situation. Thank heavens for COVID, I can drink. <laughs> but I remember being in my wheelchair, being taken to rehab, in the back of a van and I'm thinking, Oh dear God, this can't be my life. This cannot, Oh dear God, this can't be my life. And Ross never told me that when the doctor came out of the surgery said to him, he said, I hope she proves me wrong, but I don't know if she's ever going to be able to walk again unaided. He said, I think she's going to, um, he said, we didn't get it all. We couldn't get it all because of the possibilities of her stroking during surgery. So he said, I, I hope she proves me wrong. Well, of course I did, but I just remember being in the back of that van in a wheelchair saying, oh my, this cannot be my life. This cannot be my life. And it's funny because my daughter, who's 31, who lives in Brooklyn, works in Manhattan or works from home now in Brooklyn. But she said, mother, I had such a hard time visiting you in rehab because that's not my mother. That's not my mother. And she said, it was so hard for me to see you not being able to walk and not needing help. And she said, I just couldn't picture you. It was just hard. So um, I, um, I remember when I got to the rehab center, it was a Sunday and they got me all situated in my room. And I said, when do I start my, my therapy? And they said, well, it's Sunday. We don't, we typically don't do anything on the weekend. I said, I am not sitting here. I'm not going to sit in here on Sunday and do nothing but wallow in my misery. So you find me something to do, whether it be bands, whether it be something, and I remember, boy, the exercise, we take for granted, when we talk about resiliency, we take, everybody takes for granted what we are capable of that automatically. 
I think we take for granted the education that, that we're given or that we're provided or that we, you know, in which we partake. But I remember that they put little pegs in clay. I had to use, I lost the use of my right hand and I lost the use of my right leg and I had to learn how to walk again. And they put little pegs in clay and I had to learn how to use, get the pegs out of the clay so that was one of the things they gave me on that Sunday and they gave me bands to get my endurance back and my strength back. Uh, but I just told myself I was not going to live my, the rest of my life in a wheelchair. I just wasn't going to do that. That was not in my plan and I was going to make it happen. But once again, we talk about being grateful for what we have and working with what we have. I was in there with, again, I go back to the Albert sitting home for dependent children. I was in there with, girls who had been raped by their dads and and beaten by their parents and left alone and I'm in this rehab center with people who can't speak and who can't see and people who are you know just trying to navigate from getting to in from their their bed to their wheelchair and I'm thinking I've got my faculties I I'm luckier than most not as lucky as some so I stop and think, I think, well, could I be younger? Yes. Could I be thinner? Yes. Could I get a facelift? Yes. I could, I could do all those things. But I, you know, yeah, I could be a better. I think that what, you, what we think about, Mary Jo, is that I could always be a better me. So every day I wake up and I say, I, today I could be a better me today. You know, amazing story. Absolutely amazing story. But I, I don't know if you know much about the science of uh, neuroscience. And what you technically did was regrow your entire nervous system on that right side, because that's what you had to do in order to start walking again. It was completely damaged and destroyed, right? Those nerve endings had to regrow and reconnect. That is not something that just the normal person does, but it is possible, right? And we were talking earlier about in your mindset, you, you, everything is possible, everything. And most people don't have that mindset. Most people either have a, a closed mindset or uh, partially open, like, okay, I can do a little bit, but I might be, I don't want to push myself too much, right? But you just went full gusto right in there and regrew a whole nervous system. That is absolutely amazing. And I, I don't want to say I had fun doing it, but... You know, when they said three to five weeks and then I walked out in 11 days, unaided, totally unaided. But I had, I mean, I had some great lighthearted moments. I remember, you know, my, I was stapled from ear to ear. So when the, when the nurse came to get the staples out, I said, do you count them when you put them in? And she said, no. I said, well, how do you know you get them all out? She's all, we know. And I said, don't make me bitch slap you. You get them all. And then some people said, somebody said, well, leave a couple in, you'll get better cell phone reception and sure enough they left a couple in and you know so it was just fun it just so happened that a female um non-denominational i don't know if she was a somebody who helped you pray or she was somebody who wanted to come in and give you encouragement she was probably 80 years old and she walked into my room and here's this beautiful african-american um formidable woman taking my staples out and i said oh come on in we're doing extensions and she was like you know, <laughs> so she's like, I'll pray for you. I just, I, so it was, you know, and it's, but see, you used humor, right? Yeah. And humor is the number one reason why we get over illness. It's totally the reason. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that, uh, and it's funny because I've gone back 
I went back to visit a friend who was in there and I went back and saw my physic, my PA, my physical, my PT, my physical therapist. And she says, I remember you, you're married to the dentist. I said, well, I'm more than that, but yes, yes, yes. yes. Well, because he was there every day. He filmed the, the first, the day I, I walked unaided, but he filmed it. And he ran, he left that, it was a, once again, it was a Sunday morning. He filmed it. He ran to our church when we were still meeting as a congregation. And he said, she was holding up his phone. He said, she walked today. She walked today. So they just knew us as this, you know, crazy fun couple. He slept, he slept in the bed next to me in the rehab center every night. He'd get up, he'd go home, he'd take a shower, he'd go to work. He'd come home back to the rehab center, have dinner with me, sleep. And the only time we ever had an issue in the 11 days that I was there was he set the alarm off because he got out of bed in the middle of the night. Cause you know, they, well, they, they set the alarms in these places cause you can't get up. They, they you know, you've got a head injury. I had to wear this fall risk bracelet for like 90 days. I called them. I was at home and I finally got to go home. And I, one of my husband's uh, patients absolutely insisted that I get a wig because I did look pretty scary. I mean, I was shaved, you know, it was, looking and so I did have um I did um, have a, a wig but I was home for about mm, three weeks and I was squirrely I was squirrely uh, every closet was clean I mean I coped with COVID because I coped with brain tumor so I had to be home for 90 days with this brain tumor thing well I called them about two weeks after two weeks after I was home and I said can I go back to work and they said uh no you are your brain's still healing you're and I said, well, I cleaned out my garage today. So if I could clean out my garage, I think I could go sit in my office. And they said, you can't clean out your garage. <laughs> go back to your, I was like, oh my gosh, how much, how many closets can you clean? Oh so, um, and they were already clean. So see COVID, I didn't have any closets to clean. Was... <laughs> Probably because you've been keeping them clean all this time. Well, right? no, I'm trying to downsize. I'm trying to stop. I'm, gosh, we, we, you know accumulate stuff accumulate stuff i'll never forget who was a great uh comedian that talked about the stuff and then we go and we rent a storage unit to put more stuff in there george carlin you know we just get stuff and we buy stuff and my daughter who has this little apartment in brooklyn she says i don't want any of your stuff no my daughter said the same thing she did yeah she said i don't want any of your stuff i can't i don't want your stuff i said well yeah, let me show you the stuff that you should probably sell because it has a value, like Roseville pottery. This is not just a little pot here. This has a value. So right. I need to put the little notes on it or something. But you know what? She things don't matter. Experiences matter. And I think that that is as much as people chastise sometimes or chide about that era, that group, you know, the M word, the millennial group millennials yeah millennials you know what they have it spot on on a bunch of different things they got Absolutely. it in terms of my daughter wants experiences she doesn't need things she wants adventure she yeah. i mean she you know she's pretty an amazing human being but i just wonder why i my daughter is obstinate and she's got you know she's independent and she's ribald and you know i'm thinking why am I surprised? I should not be surprised. Apples never fall too far from trees there, girl. Uh, yeah, I shouldn't be surprised. But dentistry, I love dentistry. I know. And again, I, I am able to, with my clients, sometimes I go in there and I say, if you would simply have a strength of conviction yeah. 
and a passion, you know, because here's what happens when, you know, people say, well, it doesn't really matter. And isn't that a little bit esoteric? I had somebody in an audience one time say to me, isn't that a bunch of psychobabble? I will challenge that by saying your passion inspires others, not only your patients, but your team. If you want to hire great people, you've got to show them greatness. That's right. If I'm a great uh, hygienist or uh, business assistant or chairside assistant, I'm not going to put up with a whole lot of whiny, wimpy, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to do a whole lot of, eh, eh, eh. I, I don't have time for it. Next. Right. Uh, yeah. yeah. So people are now talking about they can't find good auxiliary. Yep. There are good auxiliary. They just don't want to work for you because you're not up to their standards. What are you offering? And it's not money. It's not money. No. Appreciation more than anything. Being part of a team. Being transparent. I mean, all those things are critically important to engage your team members. I think the other piece is give me something to work for. Give me something to be inspired by to come to work every day. I cannot imagine getting in my car or getting in the, on the subway or getting on a bus and going and say, and, and saying, Oh great. I get to go to a job that I hate. I just can't imagine doing that. Life's too short. I mean, I've, I've had too many close calls. Life is way too short to go to a job that you hate every day. I have a, cl- a client now, a dentist. It's really kind of sad because his spouse called me and um, she says he really doesn't want to be a dentist. And that is, you know, you, you go back to why he has a hard time getting patients to accept his treatment and why he has a hard time with his team and why, well, he comes back to him. He, and I said, you know what, I, wow. So he doesn't feel passion for it. I mean, he doesn't, she says he likes the clinical aspect of it, but the dealing with people. So I think that's one of the things I think that, um, that doctors really need to take a look at. I can have great hands. But if I don't know how to talk to my patients and if I don't know how to inspire my team, I could be the best dentist in the, in the whole dang world, but I'm not going to inspire my patients to say yes. And, you know, they say, whoever they are, the same people who, just how, who actually have determined how long peanut butter sticks on the roof of your dog's mouth. I, I mean, and all these studies, I don't know. So they say that one out of four dentists will be sued for malpractice. Within six months of graduating from dental school, I would say. But they also say that a good clinician, poor communicator, will be sued, more likely be sued, than a poor clinician, good communicator. Because if I love you, if I love old Doc Brown, I mean, so many, some of these young dentists, you know, they, if they assume another practice or maybe they associate with an older dentist and they look at previous dentistry and they're thinking... Oh my gosh. First of all, they can't denigrate the other person, but the patient is saying, I love Doc Brown. My dentistry is so wonderful. He was such a wonderful dentist. And the, the new doctor is saying, are you kidding me? They should zip it. Zip it. But then you have to learn to, what questions do you ask the patient? Tell me what you loved about Dr. Brown. Tell me what, tell me why that was such a, what, that was such a great relationship for you because I want that to be repeated with us. We have so great dentists, 
have the skill set or want to to acquire the skill set that they need to talk to people. I am very lucky in that I'm married not only to a brilliant dentist who loves dentistry. It's his vocation. It's his avocation. I mean, he sleeps, breathes, and eats. I mean, we were in Jamaica sitting on our little lanai, and we had the little pool bar was like that, like 200 feet from us. And the, the, the bartender would come over and he says, Dr. Nash, man, put those teeth away, man. Put them away. He was on the computer looking at cases, looking at teeth and, and in Jamaica. And, and he was like, put those teeth away, man. Put them away, man. I mean, he vexes over, oh, you know, he'll call a patient back and say, you know, I, I, I really wasn't really happy with the margin on that. I, I really want to redo that for you. So he loves dentistry, but he also has great people skills because he is actually an IC. So he's got that interpersonal thing and he knows how to, and I think the other pieces, because you and I talked about confidence, he is so confident in his work. First of all, he, he doesn't let insurance dictate what he will and will not do. He, and he says to the patient, will, will you allow me to tell you what I'd like to do? Would you give me permission? Uh, perfect. So he always says, would you, he doesn't say, I'm going to tell you what you need or let's talk about what your insurance will pay. He says, would you allow me to tell you what, what's possible? Would you allow me to tell you what I'd like to do for you? And so that opens up that conversation with the patient. And he always says to the patient, you don't have to do anything. It's all elective. You can do nothing. But if you want to do something, here's what I would like to do. Mm-hmm. So I think that once again, he's got those skills and, he, and his body language and everything. So I think when young dentists are thinking about when they talk to patients, we had a young associate who worked for us for a while and he was, first of all, sitting too far away. He set himself back. He had his arms crossed. Oh, you can't see me, but he had his arms crossed. He was sitting back. And I said, Gary, you need to move up and you need to look, you need to appear interested. So you need to be leaning slightly forward and you need to look in the patient's eyes. And when the patient asks you about money, you can't start And so, I mean, that is a, when, when a patient starts asking you about money, um, you, you have been around long enough, I've been around long enough. When somebody starts asking about money, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that they're worried about the money. It means they're ready to buy. Well, and exactly, but they're not necessarily worried about the money. Right. Yeah, they're not necessarily worried about the money. And, and actually, in some situations, you're right. They're just ready to get on with it. They don't need any more explanation. So I always say to my clients, learn to shut up. Learn to shut up. <laughs> you know, you don't have to explain that it's an MOD, BFL, XYZ on tooth number four and a 42-pin buildup on tooth number. You don't have to explain it all unless yeah. they really want to know. And the engineering types, that type wants to know, right? But none of us, not many of us are the engineering type. So we don't need to know. We don't need to know all the gory details. We just want to get to the point and move on. You feed it as they need it. So I would say feed as they need. But the funny story about that is, so one of our, one of my husband's patients is the architect and the engineer for rebuilding the Charlotte Douglas airport. So he came to the office one day and he said, Ross, I'm having problems with this crown. He's actually getting ready to lose, lose it, get an implant and all that. But he says, Ross, I'm having, uh, you know, I'm having a problem with his tooth. And he says, I went online last night and I'm reading about, and he starts telling him how he should address the problem. So Ross said, well, Carl, last night I went online to learn how to build an airport. And I think I've got some pointers for you on how to, how to you know, go ahead and build that Charlotte Douglas Touché. airport. Touche. Oh my gosh, that's perfect. And Carl said, 
okay, point well taken. He says, yeah. He says, you build airports. I'll do the dentistry. You know, so, so I think, but I will say that um, confidence, confidence is, um, we were talking about that. Can you learn to be confident? Partly, but I think confidence can be learned by feeling very comfortable in your dental skills, obviously. And that means you constantly, once you've learned it, you have to learn it again and again and again and again and again. And perfect it. The great news about dentistry is it's an ever-changing world. The bad news about dentistry is it's an ever-changing world. So what, I mean, remember when I talked about 16 years old, they were doing a processed acrylic temporary crown that was going to move into a porcelain jacket. When was the last time anyone prepared a porcelain jacket? Never. Gold foil? I mean. It's a long time. Oh, yeah. But composites change. You've got to be curious. If you're going to be a dentist, you've got to be curious. And you've got to tell yourself, my learning is never over. So my clinical, my clinical learning is never, never over. And because there's always something new and your patient's going to come to you and say, what's this Inman aligner? What's Invisalign? What's, you better know whether you do it or not, you better know. But, but you also have got to learn what the big scary thing right now is human resources. If you're going to be a boss, and I think that's why so many people defer to go to work for someone else or to go to work for a large group because they said, I never learned how to be a boss. But you're a human. And you know how to be a human. And if you are human to other people, you'll be a good boss. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and have, again, if you have your, multi, your mantra, your mission statement, I don't want you to tell Ross I think so highly of him because, you know. I, don't you think he's going to listen to this? No, no, no. <laughs> but he's, okay. he says, um, he says to, his, to the team, he says, you know, I drive, we drive to work separately because it's kind of our detox down from one another. And we work together a couple days a week. So uh, when I'm not with clients and I'm not on the road, of course, I haven't been on the road for like ever, March. So um, he says, you know, he said, every morning I drive myself to work and I say, Lord, let me do the right thing today. Mm -hmm. Because when I do the right thing, the right thing will always happen. So he says to the team, when we do the right thing, the right thing will happen. And, and he, the other thing he always says to the, and well, we had a, kind of a neat story that happened a couple weeks ago, but he said, he always tells his students, cause we have the National Institute. So we, right now we're actually, our last quarter is full. Good, congratulations. We're only taking 16 cause we're safe distancing, but the last, the, the, we've got a waiting list for the, the, the next three courses that we have. But he always tells his, his students and his audiences Never diagnose to pay a bill. Mm-mm. Never diagnose to pay a bill. And he said, I'd rather give it away. Uh, I would just rather give it away. So many um, young people are getting caught up in that too at this, you know, at this stage because of, you know, obvious fear over what has happened in COVID, over a multitude of things. And student loan debt is certainly not the least of it. So I can, not that I understand it, but I can understand it. But that's, you're absolutely right. It's a mantra they should learn to live by because, you know, if you develop your practice based on what bill you have to pay, it's going to come back to haunt you because everything has energy, right? And that energy, that negative energy is going to come right back. That's going to be the case you wish you didn't do. Exactly. 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 We have, and again, we're saying we had one of those cases where we, we you know, he kind of knew he shouldn't have taken it on. And sure enough, he wrote her check 
back and a right. release. He, yeah. And he, he said, you know, I knew it, should have done it. She kind of, yeah. you know, begged me to take it on. And I just had this feeling that I shouldn't have and I didn't. But then the other thing I always say, I'll tell doctors, don't let your patients take dentistry away from you. If you want to give it away, give it away. Don't let people, don't let dent, uh, your patients steal it. So have good financial protocols in your office. We had a, a young man who came in and um, Dr. Nash did a, say I call him Dr. Nash sometimes. Sometimes I call him shit for brains, you know. Um, so, <laughs> but he came in and he had a provisional done two years ago for a, a provisional bridge and it finally failed. And, and Ross told him, it's, a, it's plastic. It's going to fail you. But I understand financially you can't afford to, to do the, the final bridge. So he finally came back in because the provisional bridges failed. And Ross says, you know, I, I just really, it's not, it's not time. It's, we can't make it on a provisional. I, I just, it's time to do the permanent bridge. What's well, a six unit bridge in our office? That's $2,000 a unit. And the kid, the kid is like, um, he's almost, he's teary, embarrassed. Number one, embarrassed. Cause he, he has to tell us that he can't afford it. He's teary for that. He's teary because he can't, and he feels he, he doesn't know what to do. So Ross comes to the team at the end of the day. This is the other thing. At the end of the day, our team clocks out and we pour a bottle of wine and we sit and talk. I'm thinking, don't you guys want to go home? And they don't, you know, they want they don't. So he says, I'm a dentist. I'm a healer first. He says, not always about the money. He says, I want to give this, I want to give this kid this bridge. And so I suggested, I said, I, I'll tell you what. Uh, and this is this talks about an amazing. This talks about the culture that is can, that can be created. So I said, I'll tell you what. Why don't we just see if he can afford lab fee only, and see if that yeah yeah see if that will work for him. So we called the lab, and the lab said, you know what? And we said, here we here we have the situation. He really needs this bridge. What can you do? And he says, you know what? He says, how about if you pay for four and I'll throw in two. So once again, here was the lab. So then our team. Uh, the first one, the first assistant raised her hand. She said, why don't I, I'll clock out. When we go to do this, I'll just clock out so you don't have to pay me. So then our next assistant says, so will I. So the whole team says, you know what, we'll just clock out so we can do this. So I called him and uh, I said, um, now I do want to tell you we've, we've had a glass of wine, but just one. And I said, but I'm, we've sat, we sat around tonight and we talked about your situation. And we, before he left, I said, you guys, we need to make this man feel like a king. So I want you to give him, I want you to give him everything we give all of our patients. When we, every patient who comes in for a big case, they get a Sonicare. They don't buy one. They get a Sonicare. They get all these, they get OxyFresh. They get full-size bottles. They get of gel, of, of mouthwash, of toothpaste. You know, they get so I said, I want you to feel him to feel like a king because he's feeling so embarrassed and he's feeling so emasculated yeah. right now. So they all so I said, um, Anthony, we have had a glass of wine, but this is what I want to tell you that we'd like to, we'd like to offer you. And if you can pay for the lab and that's going to be, um, $1,200, um, the lab has agreed to, to do six units for the cost of four. And my team has offered to come in on their own time and do this for you. And he said, I, I, he said, I, I, I don't know what to say. So of course he, he said, I will find a way to make it happen. So when he called me the day of the appointment, this is why we do dentistry. He called, he called me and he said, I just have to tell you that when I come in 
uh, for my appointment because we had to do the COVID screening questions. So I'm calling him for the COVID screening questions. And he said, I just want you to know that I might act a little bit funny when I come in because I've never been treated so graciously and I've never been given such a gift and I'm not quite sure how to act. So please excuse me if I, if I, if I act awkward when I'm there because I'm not quite sure how to take your, your gift well. I, I don't yeah. know how to take it well. And we were just all, yeah, crying. Oh my God, I'm, I'm, I'm like holding it back. I'm holding it back myself. Uh, I mean, and he came in and he brought three bottles of wine and he said, you know, please share it. And of course we did. Those are those moments when you say, you know, I'm glad I, I'm glad I do what I, I, I'm glad I do what I do. It's not always, Ross was right. Dang it. I hate it when I have to say that to him. He said, it's not always about the money. I am a dentist and a healer first. I have to help this man. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, what a, what a gift both for not only for Ross and the team, but for that young man for the rest of his life. You know, just like I said to you earlier, you had no idea how much you impacted me in my young career as a, a female dentist, but you did. And, you know, fast forward, you know, someday somebody's going to come back and this young man is going to be an accomplished whatever he's going to be. And a story is going to be said about Ross and his team about how amazing they were because they cared enough to make a difference. He said, he told us with his provisionals, it's the first time he had a girlfriend. Oh. I know. I know. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I think that when you're a dentist, and I know it's hard to think about in terms of student loan and COVID and all of that, but I think sometimes when you do the feel good stuff, I think you have to be careful that, um, that you think so much about the money that it becomes nickel and diming. Um, not only team members as well as, um, uh, as well as patients. Yeah. But I also, um, and I know that um, when you were kind of asking me and you haven't read my responses that I, that I'm always encouraging, you know, young dentists, I'll never forget um, a radio personality. He was a, a financial planner and I forget what his name is. He's famous and you would probably know who he is. And a woman called him, called in to him one day and she said, my husband just graduated from dental school and we want to buy a house and we want to, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he says, well, what kind of car do you drive? And she says, well, I drive a BMW and my husband um, drives a Range Rover. And he said, ma'am, you're married to a dentist, but you're not married to a rich dentist. He said, you're living above your means. Yeah. And he said, um, learn to, and, and we have a, a professional football player in our practice and he is so smart. He plays for the 49ers. He, he flies from San Francisco to Charlotte, but he is the greatest guy. And his grandma is the sweetest person. I cannot repeat some of the advice she's given him. We could do it off camera because it's pretty funny for a grandma to give her football, famous football player, this advice. She just wants, she doesn't want him to have any baby mamas, if you know what I mean. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But she, so here he is. He's this, you know, famous football player, but he didn't buy a brand new uh, Mercedes. He bought a used one. Yep. Cause he said, you know what? I don't need a brand new Mercedes. So, you know, when I have new clients or I have, um, excuse me, clients who are new out of dental school say live within your means and even sometimes below your means. Below. I tell them to, to continue to live like a resident for the rest of their life at, for as long as you possibly can. 
you know, get the down payment on the house, get your student loan debt paid off first. Because as soon as you have that cloud rid of in your life, all sorts of things are going to open up to you and opportunities. But until you remove that cloud that hangs over your head, you're never going to be able to get beyond it. So think about that first and then you can, you know, I can't even tell you the number of students that come in and using their student loans to buy Versace this or, or Louis Vuitton that. And oh my, what are you girls thinking? You know, snap, snap out of it. No, you don't do that. You've got to start planning your financial security first. And, and when that is done, then you can start moving into those things that you might want to have, right? I think one of the very, I am a bit firm believer of advisors. And I think one of the very first advisors they should have is, is a financial planner, a CFP. And I would go one step further and say a dental CFP. Okay. There's an organization of dental CFPs that they know the industry. They mm-hmm. know what you're dealing with. And rather than that, and an accountant is not the same as a CFP and a relative accountant is not the same as an objective uh, dental CFP who will take a look at your, um, your program, not only outline what you need to do now, but help you build a strong future. Accountants are historians. Financial planners are futuristic. Nice. That's a great way to think about it. I'll pass that on. I have introduced them to uh, my students in my study club to Reese Hopper. And he has really focused in on that, that young age group to try and help with apps and all sorts of training and education to support them in their journey through all of this. Okay, you're in your first year of dental school. These are the things you should start thinking about second year, third year, fourth year. And then right after graduation, here are the things you start to plan for, you know, and and put so much in this bucket and so much. And I think the person you were talking about is probably Dave Ramsey. Yes, it was Dave Ramsey. Yes, it was Dave Ramsey. And he said, you, you know, you're not married to a rich dentist, you're married to a poor dentist. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, Reese is great. Alan Schiff out of Baltimore. He's awesome. He's the president of, um, Art Wiederman out of California. I mean, there's some great dental CFPs. Well, actually Art Wiederman is a dental CPA. Andreas Romero out of, um, Atlanta is a great dental uh, CFP, but again, finance. So I think you need both. You need a financial planner and then you need a good accountant. And I think making sure that that accountant has a really strong tax background so that you understand the tax implications of some of your purchases, all of that is really important too. You know what? I have to go to my next podcast and I'm sorry to cut this off, but I think we need to do another session because I didn't even get to my questions yet. You, we've just been having this great conversation. So I will get you back. And we're sober. It was really so enjoyable and in such a great way to get to know you a little bit more intimately. Obviously, we've we've shared cocktails in the past, but, you know, over laughs and giggles, but certainly not to this extent. And it has been my honor to to get to know you. Seriously, I I am just been so thrilled by this conversation. Oh, thank you. Thank you for your time. And I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to the Women in Dentistry podcast with Dr. MJ Hanlon. If you like our show and want to know more about us, check out our website, thewomenindentistry.com, or please leave us a review on iTunes. 
Join us for our next episode as we bring you another amazing woman leading the way for the next generation.